So, so good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. I want to take a minute and want to welcome everybody who is watching online. Come on, church. Can we welcome everybody who's watching with us today? We love you online. All right, y'all. Well, hey, next week is summer at Summit Park. Turn to the person next to you say, it's next week. Come on, just tell someone next to you say, it's next week. It all starts. Some of the best speakers we know bring in the best messages they have. It's going to be fire. It's going to be so good. So I want to encourage you to get here, bring a friend, and then we're going to be having treats after every service all month long. It's going to be really great. So Summer at Summit Park, it's all part of our strategy, honestly, what we want to do. We want to help you grow this summer. We want to help you take steps forward in your faith. Summer's awesome for laying back, going on vacation, chilling out, relaxing, just enjoying life, maybe doing something with the family, but it's also an opportunity to grow. And so we want to help you do that, all right? We want to help you grow and experience all that God has. Summer at Summit Park all throughout the month of July. And then also, 30 for 30 happening in August. We're going to take 30 days, and we're going to pray for 30 minutes every day. It's a challenge we do every year. I want to encourage you just already be thinking about that, be looking forward to that, because I really believe this fall could be the best fall of your life. Like, like literally, I really believe that. And it, and it can be that as we draw close to God, because no matter what you go through, if you draw close to God and you're close to him, uh, you can experience God's best for your life. If you believe that, say, I do. Awesome. It's going to be fantastic. And uh, today, though, we are continuing our study in the gospel of Matthew. All right, so we're jumping back in. We took a little break last week. We're jumping back in. We're going to be going to Matthew chapter 9. Um, this is, we're, we're six months into this series. This is the longest series we've ever done as a church, like by far. You know, we've normally done like six eight week. We got real crazy, 10 weeks. We're six months in. And someone asked me uh, last week, uh, they're like, hey, so this Matthew series is kind of going long. You know, it's, it's like, yeah. They're like, how much longer are we going to do it? It's like, till we finish. So we're on chapter nine, and I have no idea when we're going to finish. But if you do the math, we're like, we're like a third, we're like past, like we're in, we're past the first trimester of the gospel of Matthew, essentially, okay? So we're working our way through it, and it's been really, really fantastic, and I'm so glad uh, that we've been able to do this. And what's cool about it is we've been able to kind of just get to know this guy named Matthew, like, and the way he views things, the way he looks at the world. He's trying to help a Jewish audience, a primarily Jewish audience, understand this, this guy named Jesus, and how this guy named Jesus helped not only uh, give him uh, a role on the team, as it were, of the disciples, but he changed everything about him. Matthew was living for himself. He was living for the kingdom of Rome. And Jesus shows up and shows him another kingdom. And so as, we, as we've been reading through Matthew, he keeps going back to some of these, these ideas, these ideas of kingdom, these ideas of purpose, these ideas of following God and experiencing him for real. And and so what's cool about today, this is a great day. You came on a great day because today we're going to see, we're going to see Matthew find Jesus. So this is, this is Matthew's conversion story. This is when Matthew meets Jesus and Jesus changes his life. Now, let me just ask everybody in here, um, uh, how many of you remember that day when you found Jesus? Anybody? Like, just raise your hand if you remember that day. Like, specifically, I, I remember the day. When I found Jesus, I was in second grade, and I was a wild, terrible little sinner. 
I was. Actually, true story, I was. Um, and uh, I, I, I went to Catholic school, and Catholic school can make a wild sinner out of anybody. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, but it's true. Anyway, so, but I, I, I remember, uh, I remember, like, the, the, you know, they would smack you back in the day. I don't know what they do today, but they would take that ruler, and they would smack you. And you just had to sit there and take it. But I just took the ruler and smacked the sister. True story. I spent so much time in the principal's office, y'all. Like, literally, it's, it goes, it's down in, like, St. Linus School Legend. Like, they actually have, like, an award on the wall. They don't have an award. But they could. And if they did, for most time in the principal's office, it would have been me. Second grade, Sinner Scott. That was me growing up at St. Linus Catholic School. True story. True story. But God changed my life. I remember the day when I came down. My parents started going to an Assemblies of God church in our, in our city. They, and I remember coming down. And I remember talking to Pastor Art Ledley, led me to Christ, prayed the, the prayer with me. And that day forward, I, I started moving in Jesus' direction. And he started changing me. I wasn't perfect after that. I went through junior high. Had some stuff that God had to work out. He's still working some stuff out. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm saying? He's still working some stuff out. But, but man, I started following God, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Best day of my life, for sure. That's what happens to Matthew in our passage today. And what's very interesting about Matthew is that most people would have never guessed that Matthew would have started following Jesus. Like, if, if there was a bet, a betting pool uh, on who would get saved, Matthew uh, would have really, uh, really terrible odds of starting to follow Jesus because he was not interested. He was not, I mean, he was moving the other direction from God. Have you ever seen somebody, have you ever seen somebody whose life is so messed up, you're like, man, they really need Jesus? Just raise your hand. Have you ever seen somebody and you're like, man, if anybody needs Jesus, it's them? <laughs> like, we're all a mess, but they're a hot mess. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm saying? Like, some people, some people are just really messed up. Like, some people are going through difficult situations. Like, they're struggling. They got, like, addictions. They've got serious issues. Like, man, they really need Jesus. Or there are people that you'd be like, man, if they could find Jesus, what a difference they would make. Have you ever found yourself praying for actors or athletes or musicians like, oh, man, if they could find Jesus, they would, everybody would follow Jesus. Have you ever found yourself doing that? I remember when I was little, I would do that all the time going through high school. I was praying for all of these, you know, famous people. I was like, oh, man, if they could find Jesus, like, that would be so cool. Like, if Michael Jackson could find Jesus, the whole world would be saved. I remember praying that and, and just believing and just, like, because you just think, man, if they could find Jesus, then they would make such a difference. And here's the reality that I want us to think about as we look at our passage today. It's not that some people who are really messed up need Jesus. And it's not that some people who have a great influence and an awesome platform, if they found Jesus, they can make a difference. The reality is we all need Jesus. That's a great place for an amen. That's, that's low-hanging fruit amen stuff right there. We all need Jesus. And, and we can all make a difference for Jesus. That's, that's the reality. You don't have to be, you don't have to have uh, multiple platinum albums to make a, a difference for Jesus. You don't have to be the star of a professional sports team to make a difference for Jesus. You can make a difference for Jesus just by following him and bringing other people along. 
And that's what, that's what we see in our passage today. And, and the reality is, they, it centers around this idea that everybody needs Jesus. That's the big idea today. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Everybody needs Jesus. Come on, tell someone next to you, everybody needs him. Come on, just tell someone, everybody needs Jesus. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew's testimonial. We're going to look at Matthew's story, his version of this. And he shows us, um, as he gets ready to tell us his own story, he shows us one of the most improbable miracles to happen in Jesus's time to this point. Like, what, what we're about to see is absolutely mind-blowing. Like, what Jesus does, people don't do. But Jesus is about to do it. He, he's constantly blowing people's minds. And he's about to do that in this passage. But Jesus, or I'm sorry, Matthew in his recording of this miracle almost glances over this miracle to get to a greater miracle. It's the miracle of salvation, which is the greatest miracle that any of us could ever experience. It's the miracle of having our sins forgiven. It's a miracle of being right with God. It's a miracle of, of being able to talk with God freely, having, casting our cares upon him, being able, like, just a few minutes ago, we were worshiping, and worship team was leading us, and we were speaking Jesus over our family. Man, that was, that was fire, y'all. And we were able to come into the presence of God because your sins are forgiven because you're saved. Greatest miracle that could ever happen. We're going to see this in Matthew chapter 9. Now, here's what I want to do. I want like to encourage you to turn to your Bibles or scroll on your phones. Matthew chapter 9. I want to just walk through several verses. We're going to look at the miracle, and then we're going to look at Matthew's conversion. If you don't have your Bible or if you don't have the app, we'll have it on the screen. But I would love for you to follow along because I, I want you to let this preach to you. This is the Bible. The Bible is good stuff. The Bible is the word of God, and as we soak on it, as we let it speak to us, it will change us, and we're going to learn that everybody needs Jesus. Now, if you're ready to jump into Matthew chapter 9, say, I am. Here we go. Verse 1, Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. Now, if you've been following with us in this series, you know that he's been on the other side, in the, in the area of the Gadarenes. Remember the demoniac, where he cast the devils out. There's two of those, two guys where he cast the devils out, and all the pigs went out, and it was just really sad. All that barbecue was wasted. You guys remember that? Okay, that was a few weeks. So he's, on, he's where all of the Gentiles are living. He's been where these people, some Jews have been living and intermixing with people. So it's, it's an area of compromise, and now he's going back to his hometown where he, not his hometown, not where he grew up, but where he kind of had his base of operations, Capernaum. And verse 2 says this, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Let's pause for a moment, all right? Now, we read this, we're like, of course Jesus said that. If you've been in church any amount of time, you're like, yes, what else is Jesus going to say to this guy? That's what Jesus does. But you got to put yourself in the story a little bit here. Because you got to think about this. This guy, Jesus coming home uh, to his hometown, and, and everybody's talking about what Jesus does. And what does Jesus do? He heals. So here's this paralyzed man. He's on a mat, and his friends bring him, and they set him down in front of Jesus. And we don't even... Like, we don't have any record of them even saying anything. They just kind of bring them, and they set them down in front of Jesus. 
And now just think about this. If you're this guy, you get set down in front of Jesus. Again, you can't move. Maybe your head, you move your head. And you sit him down, and Jesus says, you're, just, you're like, just go ahead, Jesus, do your thing. You know, like, <laughs> just, I'm ready. And Jesus says, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. If you're this guy, you're like, um, thank you. <laughs> I mean, you got anything else <laughs> you want to say to me? Like, be healed? Because, <laughs> like, I don't know if you noticed, Jesus, but, like, I'm completely paralyzed here, you know? So, like, like hand movement, leg movement, I'll take anything that you're willing to share. But uh, sins are forgiven wasn't what I'm looking for. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm saying? Like, he didn't roll up into there being like, I'm just hoping that Jesus would heal my sins and forgive them. It's kind of like going to get your, like, car worked on. You know, your engine's not working. You roll up into the, uh, the, the car shop, and you walk in, and they're like, man, it's so glad to hear. we're so glad you're here today. Thank you for coming to Scott's car shop. Uh, we just want to say we love you. Thanks for coming in today. You're like, how about my car? Right? I mean, you're like, don't, like, I'm here for a reason, Jesus, and this is not it. What is Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is meeting his most significant need first. How many know Jesus always operates with priorities? He always is operating with priority. The real problem isn't that this guy can't walk. It's that this guy is spiritually dead. That's what's happening. Because that's where we find ourselves if our sins are not forgiven. See, God is the giver of life. He is what our lives are made for. You are made for God. You are made to walk with God. You are made to experience God working in your life and, and, and strengthening you and encouraging you and speaking to you. You are made for that. But sin keeps you from experiencing that because it separates you from God. Sin separates us from God. The, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. When we sin, it brings death, death to relationships and death to our relationship with God. You see, sin makes us less than we could be, less than we should be. It always takes away from us and it ultimately destroys us. And that's where this guy was at because he hadn't had his sins forgiven. So even though he's paralyzed, his biggest problem is that he's spiritually dead. Now, let's, again, think about this for a moment. This guy's paralyzed. We don't know how long he's been paralyzed. Let's assume he's been paralyzed for his entire life. You've got to be thinking, like, of all the people in the world who's committed sins, this guy hasn't committed that many. <laughs> let's just be honest. He hasn't had the opportunity. You know, I mean, when everybody else is partying, he's not. He hasn't stolen anybody. He hasn't hit one person. Do you know what I'm saying? So what is the deal. Why does he need, because what Jesus is keying in on is that the sin problem is not a hand problem, it's a heart problem. And you don't have to be able to move to commit sin. <laughs> Gross sin. Terrible sin. Sin that separates you from God. All of us are guilty of that. We're born into it. 
And Jesus is showing, hey, this guy, he hasn't been able to do a whole lot, but he has done the most terrible thing. And that's sin in his heart. Maybe sin with his, with his mind, sin with his words. He's been able to do that. And he needs God. See, because only God can fix the sin problem. Do you know this? Only God can fix the sin problem. What do we normally do with the sin problem? Just in church, in life, in, in our faith, how we, how, what do we normally do with the sin problem? We try to outweigh the sin problem, don't we? It's like, oh, I've done a couple of bad things. How many, how many have done a couple of bad things? Just raise your hand if you've done a couple of bad things. You've done something bad in your life. What we normally do is be like, I, here's, I know I've got some stuff that if I'm on the scale, like would put me, will put me down, like I've done some bad things. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to put some good things on the scale to outweigh the bad things. I mean, because, you know, like if you ask people, how do you, are you going to go to heaven? Well, of course I am. Well, because I'm a good person, right? I'm, I'm a bad person, but I'm a better person than I am a bad person. I, my, my good deeds surely outweigh my bad deeds. But here's the problem. God is perfect. So unless you're perfect, you can't get to God. You can't be reconciled with God unless God does the reconciling. Unless God himself offers the sacrifice that is perfect. Because he atones for your imperfections. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does. Look at 1 John chapter 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus does this by dying on the cross. And in a few words, he extends this grace to this man who desperately needs salvation. He needs salvation. It's beautiful because he experiences it. And he does nothing for it. Grace. There is nothing better. But not everybody's excited about it. Look at this verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law, so these are some of the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Now, these guys aren't wrong if this is anybody else. Right? Like, nobody gets to say, I forgive your sins unless their name is Jesus Christ. Like, that's the only person who gets to say this. So if you walked around, even after service in the lobby, just going around people being like, forgiven. Grace. Under the blood. My blood. It would be very weird. You probably wouldn't make many friends. Probably, people would probably keep their distance from you. Now, if I did the same thing, like, if, you know, if, 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 if I just started being like, you know, anybody who comes forward after service and who experiences the touch from my two fingers, why is it always two fingers with the religious things? You know, I don't know. It's two fingers and it's a movement like this. But if after service you come forward and I do a little bit like this, that would be incredibly weird. And the assemblies of God would come and take my ministerial credentials. And it would probably be <laughs> viral news on social media. Pastor claims to be second coming of Christ. Because nobody gets to forgive sins except Jesus. Now, here's what's amazing. These guys are waiting their entire lives for the Messiah to show up. 
They've been praying. They, they get up every day praying for it. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. And now the Messiah is in their midst and they miss it. Why do they miss it? Because they're so focused on their religion. And this is a good word for us, church. We can be so focused on our religion that we miss out on the one our religion is all about. How many know sometimes it's possible that God is moving in our midst and we can completely miss it because we're so focused on ourselves and what we're doing? That's what happens to these guys. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? See, for God, it's the same. There's no effort that God's like, oh, sin, forgiven, or oh, get up and walk. It's just the same. Just one word. And it happens. But verse 6 says this, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority. Everybody say authority. Come on, everybody with strength say authority. authority. We've heard this word before, haven't we? If you've been with us over these last several weeks, Matthew keeps coming back to this idea of authority. He is trying to help us see that Jesus does, in fact, have the authority, that the Son of Man has authority on earth now to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. Like, the Bible just says things sometimes, and you're like, wow. I mean, there should be 35 exclamation points after that sentence. Right? Paralyzed guy gets up, rolls up the mat, and goes home. Everybody's like, what? That actually just happened? And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Jesus, fully God, fully man. He's got authority to calm waves. We've seen that. He's got authority to heal sick people. He's got authority to cast out demons. And now Jesus demonstrates the authority to forgive sins. And that's why he's here. It's why Jesus came. Remember when he was prophesied his birth, that the son of God will come to forgive people's sins. Like, I want you to know that, that Jesus isn't just about you living a better life, although he is about you living a better life. He isn't, he isn't about you having good moral uh, things to do and by just feeding uh, people who need uh, food or, or being nice to people. He is about all of those things, but what he is primarily concerned about is your soul. And your soul is sick. It's sick with sin, and only Jesus can take your sin away. But that's why he came, for all people, because everybody needs Jesus, even people like Matthew. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He goes up to him. He says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Again, we're so used to reading this in our Bible. If you're around church, you've been around church any amount of time, 
He's like, of course he did. That's what happens. Jesus shows up and Matthew gets up. But this is absolutely crazy. First of all, it's crazy because Matthew is making a ton of money right now. Being a tax collector. He is rolling in the big bucks. He lives more comfortable than any of his Jewish uh, colleagues and friends and family. He lives better than anybody else. He's got it made. So it's crazy that he leaves all of that just immediately and follows Jesus. That's somewhat crazy. But what's even crazier is that Jesus is talking to him in the first place because he is a tax collector. And as we all know, tax collectors are terrible people. Come on, somebody. In that day, it was different than in our day. In that day, a tax collector was someone who had betrayed his country. So here's the scenario. Just picture this. Picture like a... Another nation invades America and takes over. Now, we know that that would never happen because we would kick their butts. Come on, somebody, America. (laughs) But for the sake of the story, let's just hypothesize a little bit. Somebody takes over our country, and they impose a vicious and aggressive martial law where they're basically military thugs keeping the peace and imposing and enforcing and collecting High taxes. Somebody like, has that already happened? Um, anyways, um, even worse. <laughs> even worse than it is right now. But, but let's say it's, just, it's really bad. And to collect these taxes, they, they, they come and they beat you up and, and they, they, they collect these things from you. And they, they hire people among the community who know the community to be like, yeah, that person hasn't paid their taxes. That person, these are the tax collectors. They are betrayers of the nation. They're betrayers of the people. For the Jewish person, like, their like, national identity is really, really important to them. So these people are like, they have betrayed everything. And it'd be like one of your neighbors, like, you're, you're living in your community, and you'd be like, man, we will fight against them. We will rally. One day we will rise. And, you know, one day your neighbor Jim is like, hey, by the way, I just want you to know, I've joined the ranks. And you're like, what? Jim's become a tax collector. You're like, Jim, I can't believe you would do that. We barbecued together. And he's betrayed you. He's turned his back on you. He's, he's now working for the enemy. That's a tax collector. They were despised. And yet Jesus asked one of these sinners To follow him, unconscionable, unthinkable, unacceptable. People don't like it. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, not only does he call this person, now he goes to Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. This is a who's who list of who not to hang out with. This is like like the in Shrek, the Poison Apple Tavern, where all the villains hang out? That's this, Matthew's house. And Jesus is hanging out, chilling with sinners, unconscionable. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, what's the deal here? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees are asking this, but you know who else, who else is asking this? Everybody. Everybody's asking this. Probably even the disciples. 
The Pharisees asked the disciples. The disciples said, I have no idea. He's kind of doing some weird stuff lately. We went over to this terrible area. He's casting demons out. It was a little nuts. And now we're back here hanging with sinners. I don't know. And Jesus, on hearing this, said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's like, do you know why I'm even here? I'm here to cure what is really ailing humanity. And it's not paralysis. And it's not cancer, as terrible as those things are. The thing that is destroying your life is sin. And Jesus, out of grace, has come to take that from you and to give you a new heart, to cover your sin, to forgive you of it, and to reconcile you with God. These Pharisees have completely missed the point, but watch what Jesus says. He goes, but go and learn what this means. And now he quotes something from the prophet Hosea. He's like, I think you guys might remember this one. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's like, what I've come to do is, is restore humanity back to God. And so I don't need all of your little rule following, which we'll get here in just a second. He says, I've come for mercy, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's like, you guys think you're so spiritual? You are farther from God now than you've ever been because God's heart is to restore people back to himself. Two thoughts that I want to give us from, from this passage. Number one, religion tends to keep people from God. It's just the way that it works. But relationship brings people to God. Religion keeps people from God and relationship brings people to God. I just want to hit these real quick and then we'll pray together and uh, hopefully learn and grow as we do. But before we do, I want you to find three people next to you and say, hey, Jesus is for everybody, even me. Come on, find three people and just tell them, Jesus is for everybody, even me. Quick two points here. First of all, religion tends to keep people from God. I'm not talking about religion in the good sense of the word that the brother of Jesus, James, will talk about when he says true religion that is faultless and pure is to keep oneself from being being polluted from the world, and to take care of orphans and widows. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about whatever we do to make ourselves feel worthy before God. That's religion. And most of the time, in organized church, it looks like us doing things, right? The problem with that for God is that religion was never the point. Religion was never the point, and here's, here's why. Two reasons. Number one, religion makes life all about rules. Religion makes life all about rules. The people who have the most difficult time with Jesus are known as Pharisees, and they kept the rules better than anybody else. Like, they would be MVP, world champion, all-star, keeping of the rules. And, like, in that day, that was what mattered. So when they walked in and they had all their flowing robes and all of their stuff, everybody was like, ooh. It'd be like Patrick Mahomes coming walking up. Ooh, look at the all-stars. Look at the MVPs. They keep the rules better than anybody else. There was over 600 rules that a Jewish person was supposed to follow. Everybody said, that's a lot of rules. 
<laughs> it really is. 600 rules. And so what they would do, the Pharisees would be like, I don't want to break that rule, which that's a good thing. But they would make a circle around that with other rules. And then they would make another circle around that with other rules. And then another circle. So they have all of these rules upon rules upon rules just so they don't break this rule. And they become obsessed with the rules. And they miss the whole point of the rules, which is knowing God. So they miss all of it because that's what religion tends to do. It tends to be about rules. That's why Jesus would quote in Matthew chapter 15, which we'll probably get to in six months or so. Matthew chapter 15. He says this, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They talk a big game, yet they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. He's like, it's not about that. Stop making it about the rules because you're missing God, who is the point of all of this. God always wants more. He's not after, he's not after rule following. He's after heart following. He wants you to look to him as God and king and savior. And rules have this tendency of taking the heart right out of it. So religion misses the point because it's all about rules. But then the real problem with religion is that it's all about us. That, that's what religion, it becomes all about us. In its purest form, it's, it's not even about God anymore. It's about you. And here, here's the encouraging, challenging word today. It's not about you. Life is not about you. But religion, when we, when, we, when we get very religious, we make it about us, don't we? God loves you. God died for you, but it's not about you. It's about him. It's about him. It's about Knowing him, and it's about relationship with him. And that is the second point, which is this. Relationship brings people to God. Okay, Jesus shows up. Matthew's living for the world. He's living for himself. Jesus shows up to his booth, and he says, I want you to follow me. What is he offering him? Relationship. He doesn't say, Matthew, I want you to memorize this little pamphlet. I'm going to come back in a few days. Here's our belief system. If you could just say, and I want your signature that you're going to say, you're going you're gonna to do all of these things. He doesn't do that. I don't, I don't think Matthew knows much about Jesus. Maybe he's watched him a little bit. He's heard about him, but he doesn't know. But he knows what he has is better than what he has. He knows that what he is settling for is meaningless. And that guy, he's full of meaning. So he's like, you know what? I'm willing to start following. I believe in that moment, he's saved. The moment he starts following Jesus, he starts, see, salvation is both an event and a process. We are saved and we are being saved. I believe in that moment, Matthew begins salvation. He's like, I'm leaving this and I'm starting. Is he perfect? No. <laughs> he's just a follower. 
But that's all that God's asking us to do. That's why we talk about this all the time in our church. We're not a perfect church. We're just a bunch of imperfect people on an imperfect journey towards a perfect God. But he is changing us in the process. He is doing a work as, as we start moving towards him, as we follow him, as we say, Jesus, your way is the way, and I'm moving in your direction. He does this work in our hearts, and he changes us, and he reforms us, and he saves us, and it's beautiful. It's amazing, and this is why he came for this. It's through relationship, not religion. So our relationship with God is how we experience salvation. It's Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself, for it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What do we normally do? What do we normally do when we get good at religion? We get arrogant. Right? You start getting really good at this. You start being like, you know, you, you, you go to Mardell and you buy the biggest Bible you can find. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with that. Big commentaries. I mean, it's awesome. Got, I have lots of Bibles, lots of big Bibles. But what we do is we end up being like, I don't know if you saw them. my Bible. It's pretty amazing. Read it every day this week. I'm killing it. I've memorized 12 verses. Got them memorized. I've memorized the Lord's Prayer. I can say it. I can say it in Hebrew. Even though it wasn't written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek. And I happen to know that because I'm killing it. That's what we do. We get arrogant. It's interesting. What actually pushes God away? Pride. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Religion makes it about us, but relationship makes it about him. It makes it about what he does. Grace through faith it saves us. Not because of anything we've done but because of what he has done and who he is. But it doesn't end there because our relationship with God is how others will experience salvation. This is what Matthew's trying to get across to us because he'll go back. This is where he finds Jesus, but he'll go back and he'll record all the stuff that we've already read, right? All the stuff we've already been through. He'll talk about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, be a light to the world. Shine your light bright. Let others see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven because that's what I've come to do. And then he'll wrap up this whole gospel, again, bringing us to the Great Commission, which is go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you even unto the ends of the age because this is why Jesus came. This is what he all about bringing people who are far from God to life in Christ. That's not a point. It's the point. It's the point. So our job is to partner with him in helping more people connect. Why don't we do it? Sometimes it's because we think, oh man, they're going to say no. They might say no. I might go ask them. Do you want to come to church with me? Do you, 
do you want to hear more about Jesus? And they might say no and haunt my feelings. Really? Or they could find God. I don't know. Or, or they think, man, you know what? I'm not perfect. So what do I, what am I, who, who am I to ask somebody else to come be a part of faith? Well, you're, you're a fellow follower is who you are. That's why, see, that's why it's so important to have a sound theology. I'm not perfect either, but I'm following the one who is. Come on, let's go together. See, that's why it's so important. It takes the pride out, brings the humility in, and other people want to be a part of that. I just want to close with, with a quote that challenges me in my evangelism. Because honestly, you would think, Scott, you're a pastor. Like, you're automatically good at this. I'm not. I have to preach to myself a lot. It's easy to preach up here. <laughs> it's real easy to preach. It's, it's hard to do what you do each and every day. Sharing Christ with coworkers and neighbors and friends and family. It's, that's, that's hard. But here's what atheist Penn Gillette says. He's one of the uh, magicians in the group Penn and Teller. Maybe you've heard this. It's powerful. Challenge you. He doesn't believe in God. Thinks it's dumb. Thinks it doesn't make sense. But watch what he says about sharing your faith. He says this. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize or share their faith. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, an atheist who think people should proselytize and who should just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He goes on. He, he says, doesn't stop. He says, I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. From a guy who doesn't even believe. But he says, if you believe, you should tell me. Because if you really believe what you believe, that is the most important thing in the world. And it is. The only thing he gets wrong is that it actually what we're talking about is true. That there is a God who loves people and has a plan for their life and came and he lived and he died and he atoned for sin because that is our problem. And when we invite him into our hearts, we cast our cares on him, we let him take our sin from us, our shame, we walk with him, he changes us, and he, and he changes the world through us. Amen?